Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, before we get to a good conversation with Joshua Ryan Butler, let me tell you about this month's sponsor. It's Centerpiece's E3 Conference. You might remember a few weeks ago, Sally Gary was finally on the show, and uh, that's a great thing because she's got a conference that her organization, Centerpiece, is putting together. For those who have ever wondered how to respond to the needs of parents who have a son or a daughter who are a part of the LGBTQ community, or if you're searching for better ways to support men and women who are part of the LGBTQ community and a part of your congregation at the same time. So this is a safe place to resolve questions about faith and sexuality. Now, the E3 conference is October 27th through 29th in Dallas, Texas at the Highland Oaks Church. I'll be there. Richard Beck will be there. A handful of other people you'll know will be there as well. So I hope some of you can make it to Dallas October 27th to 29th. For more information, click, click the link in the show notes. Now, the next thing I want to tell you about is the Mailbag Podcast. I'm actually going to record this um, on the 24th. That's Friday, so that's just uh, four or five days after this gets posted. And my dad doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to be visiting them, and I'm going to make him record the mailbag with me. So uh, get your questions in in the next couple days. Uh, email Luke at Luke Norsworthy or post it on the Facebook page or send me a message on Facebook, and uh, we'll get your questions uh, answered. Somewhat, at least. So, Mailbag Podcast coming up next. Uh, it'll be out in a few weeks, but we're going to record it on the 24th. So, get your questions in before then. And without further ado, Joshua Ryan Butler. Here we go. All right. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have joining us from the Pacific Northwest for the second time, Mr. Joshua Ryan Butler. Hello. Hey, good to be with you, Luke, again. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, I, I told you this off mic, but you've got probably the best hair of anyone who's ever been on the podcast. <laughs> and for that, I'm very grateful. Ah, oh, thanks. <laughs> now, we've got to jump right in. There's something that is just burning a hole in my brain. I saw a picture on the Facebook of you and the Pope. Yes. <laughs> Was that photoshopped? Did... No. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Yeah, so I, I, just had, I was totally humbled. I had the chance this week to meet with Pope Francis. He had asked for a, you know, a gathering with some young evangelical leaders just kind of going, man, there's a lot. He's obviously been a huge bridge builder and you know, a lot mm -hmm. we can learn from each other. And, and uh, for him to just say, hey, I think there's a lot of things you guys have done well, like helping people personally engage the scriptures and experience their faith and um and so i don't know how i don't know somehow i got in the mix which was just amazing but i've been a huge pope francis fan for a while i really appreciated him kind of from afar and then getting ready for the trip i ended up reading you know reading his biography and reading a lot of more of his writing mm -hmm. and stuff and just even more so just kind of jaw to the floor astounding respect for for, for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we had scheduled this podcast before I knew you went there, but I would have interviewed you for an entire podcast just about this trip. <laughs> that is so amazing. So multiple questions. Get ready. Yeah. Okay, when did, like, do you get an email from the Pope or like a, a dove <laughs> with a scroll or something? How does that happen? How do you get contacted yeah, there's, there's by the Pope? kind of flew over Portland and dropped a <laughs> scroll down in front of my house. No, yeah, it was, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it was, you know, it was an invite through a, a, a friend. You know, we had, a, um, I think the Vatican had 
sought out a few people they were connected to in the U.S., and then each of those people had like five invites or so, and then, uh, yeah, we got one, and our lead pastor, Rick, uh, entrusted me with kind of representing us there, which was really awesome. <laughs> okay, so who, young evangelicals, so what other young evangelicals were there? Uh, so let's see, there was, uh, there were some folks from like, uh, Trinity Grace in New York, if you're familiar with, uh, like John Tyson and, and some of that crew, uh, okay, yeah. Tyler Johnson and Ricardo Stewart from Redemption, uh, out in Phoenix, uh, Redemption Church in Phoenix area. And then, um, Jay Pathak and, uh, uh, Robert Gelinas from Denver. Um, yeah, there were some, uh, David Gunger was there, there was some, uh, Ryan Thurman, uh, yeah, I, a number of the folks, it was the first time we'd really kind of met in person and connected, so Got to know some really yes. great you. So how long were you there? Uh, for about six days. Yeah. So yeah. Wait, <laughs> e- how, how much time each day were you with the Pope? Oh, no, it was just for one day. So you kind of got there, and then they had a dinner with the, you know, the team, kind of thinking through prepping, you know, just kind of getting prepped on the backdrop to everything. And, and then uh-huh. uh, we had the next day where we kind of met at the Vatican, not with the Pope, but just with some of the, some of the others who were helping prep us for it and kind of thinking through how it would go. And we, we got to brainstorm the surface, you know, what were what would be kind of the questions or things that we'd want to ask and, and have a dialogue around. And uh, so we kind of surfaced those. And then the whole day, there's sort of a final preparatory thing, and then met, met with him in the afternoon for a few hours. Yeah, so I actually, I just put a, a post on my blog uh, at the beginning of this week that kind of outlines in detail kind of the conversation and how that went down and all that. It goes into a lot more depth, but wow. yeah, it was, it was pretty rough. Yeah. Okay, so like, what questions were you asking? Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, mine, uh, the, the one that I kind of brought to the day, we had five main questions that came out, um, and then at first and uh and the one i brought was just kind of his vision for um the mission of the church you know and particularly like the role of the the laity and so uh he you know he talked about how he feels like one of the biggest dangers in the church today is sort of a clericalism you know he sees a lot in the catholic church particularly where it's almost like um the the church existing to support the clergy rather than the clergy existing to serve and build up and equip Hmm. the body of christ for ministry and so uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about that, just the, uh, the lady, like, uh, in the power of God's spirit, the lady, uh, bringing the voice of God in so many ways. And so he, one of the things he talked about was the need for us as clergy to really reclaim and develop what he called like the ministry of the ear, you know, and he's like, that can sound kind of ironic because often, you know, one of our central roles is to proclaim the word. And that is actually, you know, central and significant. Uh, but, uh, that, that needs to be balanced with a listening to the voice of the people and hearing, uh, what God is up to in and, in and amongst his people. And, and yeah, I mean, we've seen them as the, seeing the body of Christ as a whole is how God is wanting to move in the world. So, wow. What, uh, so did you like shake his hand or give him a hug or what, like pound, give him a fist or what did you do? <laughs> well, this one, yeah. Yeah, we exchanged cell phone numbers. And, uh, we've been texting <laughs> week, like, hey, what do you think about this? <laughs> no, yeah. Does he no, follow he you on Twitter so... now? What's that? Does he follow you on Twitter now? <laughs> no, I, I, I wish. No, yeah. In... yeah, he uh, followed no, back. He, but it was funny, like, you know, the way things were set up, he had, you know, he, his chair was obviously kind of centered and everyone else sort of wrapped around. But one of his first remarks was just classic Francis, you know, like, uh, I wish I could get out of this chair and just come be, you know, sitting, you know, I'm, I'm one of you. I wish I could just be, you know, hmm. sitting around, sitting around the circle with you guys. So, um, and so he was very uh, down to earth, 
formal. And he, at the end, he did, you know, after a few hours, I expect he was tired and ready to go, but, but he, he offered to hang out and take pictures and he, you know, he, uh, he handed out. He gave us some of copies of one of his books, and wow. you know, kind of shook hands with everybody. And yeah, so it was pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, mm. how long in advance did you know that you were going to go see the Pope? It was about three weeks in advance, so it came up pretty quick. Wait, you cut out. Say that again. How long? Oh, it was about three weeks in advance. So that's it. you only yeah, got it three weeks. Quick. Yeah. And you're totally. like, hey, I'm going to drop everything on my schedule because you don't get that many opportunities to go to the Vatican and meet the Pope. It, Exactly. Yeah, it was it was a pretty rare opportunity. So totally wow. cleared the schedule and got ready for it. Yeah, that is <laughs> simply amazing. Uh... Yeah, yeah, I'm still kind of reeling, blown away. And you know, other questions that came up. You know, uh, we talked about you know like um, things like uh, the uniqueness of Christ. You know, what is it that makes Christ unique, and how is that hope for our world today? And so he had some great stuff to say on that. One of the questions I thought was interesting was just. Uh, pluralism, you know, we live in kind of a pluralistic context, like how, how does he see the gospel and the church best engaging kind of a pluralistic context? And his response, I thought was great. He just talked about how, um, you know, he's like, I think the greatest danger today is not the diversity in our world, it's uniformity and how hmm. much kind of global forces, political, economic, and otherwise are uh, tending to uh, threaten to kind of homogenize us all under these uh, you know, ways that are unhealthy. And so you use kind of the image of a, a sphere. We tend to think of globalization like a sphere where it does operate to where they think of like McDonald's and Starbucks or international banking, or uh, those are my examples, yeah. you know, but like uh, it can tend to impose kind of this homogenous vision all over the world. And he goes, I like to think that, you know, God's vision is much more like, I think he called it a panoply or some of that, but it was like a, a picture where there's unity, but it's a unity that expresses itself in a vast variety of diverse ways and all. I don't know. He had a lot of just uh, on every. So we had five questions we prepared, and you know those were presented, and he interacted with those for a bit, and that was about an hour. And then after that, he just opened up the floor for interaction Q and A, and we all just started talking more informally and all. Wow. Yeah, and I, I actually uh, confess, I, I had the opportunity to confess and be blessed by the Pope, which is a little weird. Did you? I mean, like the, uh, did you save up like a really good sin that you needed to confess? You're like, hey, I'm going to the Vatican. This one's definitely going to be expunged from my record. No, you should have like well, it was, robbed it was the bank the or cuff. something. I had had something. <laughs> it was, I had had something else that I wanted to. You know, I had a few other things that I had thought. You know, if we get a chance, I'd love to ask him this. But then in the moment, I just, uh, I, I, you know, I was kind of prayer, prayerfully in the moment, moment like, God, you know, yeah, just the the piece that I, I wanted to bring. You know, during the interactive time, I basically just stood up and said. I, I, Pope Francis, you know, I have a confession to make, and he chuckled and laughed. The whole room kind of laughed. It was a little bit tongue in cheek. It's sort of this evangelical Protestant coming to confess to the Pope, you know. So we all kind of laughed, and but I just talked about, you know, here in Portland, we have had, you know, a, we're part of a movement of around a hundred uh, churches, evangelical churches, who are uh, involved in like serving in foster care, refugees, anti-trafficking, homelessness, schools, just really. Uh, seeking to embody the love of Christ together. It's kind of been this witness to the love of Christ and the unity of the church. Um, but the confession was just that I have not worked hard enough and we have not worked hard enough to reach out and bridge, build bridges with uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ and just recognizing that that's a failure on my part and it's something I want to commit to changing coming back. Wow. And so, um, And he got a big smile on his face and kind of reached out his hand and he said, uh, the Lord will bless you in this, <laughs> which was... It was pretty rad, and um, and then we all 
prayed the Lord's Prayer wow. together to our Father, which is pretty oh, cool. So, that's so cool. Anyways, I am hopeful that, you know, I already have kind of a string of meetings lined up here, but I am hopeful it can be a catalyst for trying to build bridges here in our own city. Uh, yeah, with Catholic brothers and sisters here. Since you, how long have you been back from the trip now? Uh, just about two days, three days. I got back Sunday how, night, so yeah, three days. How often have you said, well, when I was talking to the Pope, how, how often have you said that? Because <laughs> I would use it a, every time. It, it's fun to drop in, in conversation. You know, it has, I'm, I'm not, like, I, I feel a little sensitive, like, I don't want to be, like, uh, name-dropping each other, but, like, walking around, hey, I'm at Francis, can sound a little egotistical or but, um... It has been fun. You know, I love, there's been a couple times, like, say, uh, at the coffee shop, or today I was at the chiropractor, you know, I remember the next day being at the coffee shop, and, and the barista, who I know, I go in there regularly, and they're just like, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, a little jet lag. And why? And, oh, I just got back from Rome. And, oh, what? And, uh, you know, I'm not looking for it. I just kind of, oh, hanging out with, <laughs> we had the chance to go meet Pope Francis, and they were just like, what? You know, and then they called yeah. the whole coffee shop over. You know, like everyone on staff are like, that's about so it sparked a lot of fun conversations, um, particularly with people who are not necessarily followers of Jesus, but really interested. I mean, Francis has had this kind of great posture of sacrificial love and humility and this kind of witness. And I think uh, just a broad respect beyond the bounds of the church. And so it's 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 opened up uh, just some great conversations around yeah. faith who he is. And, yeah. okay, I think the, the universal response to Pope Francis has been overwhelmingly positive, more so than just about any religious figure that I can think of um, in years. And so it, in a lot of ways, he's not just a religious figure. He's a, a like a global celebrity um, for the way that yeah. he's found himself to be such an endeared figure. And so that's a pretty sweet name drop. Yeah, yeah I met with the Pope. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a world leader. And, and dude, and one of the things that really struck me was, you know, I had seen kind of that humility from afar, um, but I guess just would affirm, like, it just almost radiates from him really? as well in person, like, just that humility. And I think, uh, I, I don't know, not trying to push my blog or whatever, but on the, the post this week, like, where I kind of go in depth in some of his responses, and I think you can just hear it in his voice, on the cuff, in the mm-hmm. moment, just this deep humility and but also real wisdom like he's yeah he's he's looking at the world through a very christ-centered lens and just sees as you know i was talking with someone today just going like it feels like we often get in in my circle you know we can get caught up in like the minutiae and kind of the small picture you know and reading some of his stuff and it feels like he's just constantly he's you know uh, seeing the whole field sort of you know like has a, a more comprehensive vision often of um just the fullness of life and what God is up to in the world. And yeah, reading some of his books and stuff. That's awesome. In preparation here. And it was really cool. Oh, that that's way. great. Well, um, that's such a great story. And uh, speaking of books, let's talk about your new book. You, uh, you were on here last time, uh, a few months back, and you discussed your uh, book, The Skeletons in God's Closet. All the God's Closet is now cleaned out. It's cleared up. <laughs> no more questions about God. Got They're all taken care of. That was really that was very thoughtful of you to clear clear out God's closet. <laughs> yeah, he, he yeah he hired me to do a little house cleaning. Yeah, I, I was the maid for a bit and got them all cleaned out. So, so your new ready book, to move on to some other things. Yes. So yeah. now we've got the pursuing God. Uh, came yeah. out a couple months ago, two months ago, three months yeah, ago. Yeah, about a month and a half. Yeah, beginning of May. Okay, so it's been out for a little while, and I feel like as I'm reading through this, the the skeletons in God's closet we're doing with some of the the tougher things about God. This one, uh, tell me if my take on this is correct, but it seems like yeah. in some ways your like 
recasting a vision of God instead of a character of God, like the gospel, like some harsh mm-hmm. views, not so loving mm-hmm. views of God. Is that, am I picking up what you're putting down on that? Yeah, totally. You know, I'd say one of my biggest hopes is to try and uh, just help reclaim a robust confidence in the goodness of God for people, you know? And so this one, the premise is going, dude, I, I feel like a lot of us act as if God's lost, you know, that God's gone missing out in the universe somewhere and we need to kind of pick up the hunt and go search for him and follow any sort of trail of breadcrumbs we can. And so we talk about things like searching for God and exploring spirituality and finding faith. Uh, but the premise of this book is going, what if we have it backwards and God's actually the one coming after us? And I believe at the heart of the gospel that Jesus reveals this God who relentlessly comes after us in Christ in order to reconcile us and bring us home. And, and that the question that we're really ultimately faced with is not whether we've been good enough or jumped high enough or tried hard enough. The question is, do we want to be found? Like, do we actually want to receive God's search for us and lay our lives vulnerably before this God who comes after us. So the book is trying to look at sort of major themes and threads from throughout the biblical story, but it's specifically centered on on the, the life and work of Christ as um, the ultimate sort of display of that theme. And like you said, at the end of the day, along the way, I'm trying to help kind of offer some paradigm shifts for folks with some of the tough topics of the faith. This one gets into particularly like sacrifice, wrath, and atonement, you know, where I feel like sacrifice has got a bloodthirsty carnivore. You know, I think I found a lot of us today, we don't know how to make sense of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It just looks weird and, you know, savage or, you know, so trying to make sense of that. Uh, And then wrath, like, why does God get angry? You know, I think a lot of times there's been some really poor preaching on, right, you know, that makes God look like kind of he's got this vindictive dark side and uh, trying to see his anger arising because of his love for the world, not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. Um, and then ultimately the cross, you know, uh, one of the central pieces trying to help understand the Trinity and the cross and what's going on there, where I feel like uh, divine child abuse is kind of the caricature that it gets thrown out sometimes that the father's, you know, beating the snot out of a son and just going, I don't think it's that. Um, I do think we need to be able to deal with themes like sacrifice and how those relate. But for me, it's ultimately going to do to all this. The whole story is driven by the relentless love of God yeah. through and through. Yeah. yeah so, you're, so you're recasting a vision of who God is. And I, I love this idea that, you know, we're not pursuing God. It's not us trying to get to God. But um, Richard Rohr, since you know the Pope, you know pretty much mm-hmm. every Catholic person there is. Um, uh, one of my beloved friend, uh, uh, favorite yeah. people in the world, Richard, I would say beloved friend, but I, I feel like that's a little bit too yeah. audacious. But Roar says, like our prayer for God, would you please show up here, is short-sighted because the real question isn't, mm. will God show up? God has already shown up. The question is, will we be yeah. aware of it? And I keep going, like, that seems mm. to be like a central theme of uh, of my heart is like, it's not like I'm trying to reach for God, but God's already reached for me. Now, how do I, yeah. how do I live in awareness of that? So you're like d- dismantling, I would say some like unhealthy caricatures of God. Where do you yeah. think those are coming from? Like you, you mentioned poor preaching, um, which yeah. hopefully you're not talking about my preaching, but you're talking about someone else. I'm <laughs> assuming <laughs> like, is that where you see it coming from? Or, or why do you think that has gotten into the collective conscience as we understand who God is? Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. You know, I would say that there's two two angles for it for me. One, I would say, is I do think we've had some poor preaching, teaching. Uh, you know, part of the vision of the book, I'm not trying to reinvent doctrine. It's really trying to reclaim what I would see as kind of a robust historic orthodoxy. And so uh, the views I'm presenting, you know, I, I see them as aligned with whether, you know, the major themes of Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant um, thought 
but I think in recent years, a lot of that's been kind of forgotten, you know, maybe. And so maybe there's some poor features. But I, I tend to think that from the one angle, the caricatures seem like this kind of oppressive thing uh, placed upon us that we need to be sort of liberated from, you know. But I think there's another angle, too. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in Skeletons, but I think there's also a piece where we created the caricatures, not God. <laughs> you know, that, that they're not only uh, oppressive things that we need to be liberated from, but also they're constructed things by us that we need to repent of. You know, that um, I think there's a part of us I found that I think almost wants the caricatures to be true, because if we can make God out to be the petty, vindictive, whatever, it can give us an excuse for writing him off and uh, wanting to live independently from him, you know? And so that's fast. Fasc- I've never thought that we would create a poor version of God as a pretext mm. to not have to live a life in relation to God. Yeah. That's brill- did you come up with that yourself? As if, far if you as I, I would know. say that I did. <laughs> I probably got it somewhere and didn't remember it. <laughs> <for> it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, you know, and so I think it's kind of a both end, you know, I I do think that, uh, but I have found in my own life going, oh, the gospel, the God of the gospel is so much better than things I've settled for, but also realizing, man, I feel like there are parts deep in my own heart that like, ultimately, you know, I wanted independence and autonomy from God at some level and used the caricatures to justify keeping myself at distance from this God who is good through and through, you know, kind of course. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if God's terrible, then you don't feel like you'd want to be in connection to God. Yeah. yeah that's great. It's kind of like the, uh, like, Hey, I'm about to break up with you. And then you go, Oh, well, I was breaking up with you already. You know, yeah, you're trying totally. to come up with an excuse to make it seem not so bad. <laughs> yeah. So you have a, like, there are a couple questions that, that you, you mentioned in the book, like, could Jesus have sinned mm. or could God have forsaken Jesus? Mm. Some might hear those questions and go, well, those are kind of like navel-gazy questions mm. that don't really have any connection to real life. Um, you know, that's like, well, yeah. you know, could my aunt have been my uncle? You know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. What do you think the benefit of, of exploring those type of questions uh, what's the benefit of that? Totally. Yeah. So a couple of things, like, let's just take the first one, you know, uh, could Jesus have sinned? And where I go with that, you know, I think historically that there, there'd be this idea or doctrine that Jesus uh, could not have sinned. And, you know, I, I would say the idea is kind of like, I think it all depends on what we mean by could have, you know, if we mean, did Jesus actually have the opportunity to sin? Uh, yes, fully. Like, dude, think of the temptation scene in the desert where, He's fully feeling the full weight and freight of our humanity. And so I believe, yeah, Jesus could have sinned in the sense that he had the opportunity fully presented and felt the weight of it. But uh, I think if we were asking, would Jesus have sinned? You know, I think historically the church would say Jesus would not. He could have, and the opportunity was there, but he would not have. And the reason he would not have is because he loves the Father he perfectly loves the Father. He perfectly loves humanity and is on this mission to reconcile. So what prevents Jesus from sinning is not kind of some uh, blind fate or something outside forcing itself upon him. What prevents Jesus from sinning is love, <laughs> and that yeah. his love is unconquerable. And so uh, that would be an example where on that question, and, and a lot of them, I'm trying to use what you know what the historic thing is, is saying in order to reclaim, and, and, and that and that way you're to reclaim uh a vision of the greatness of Christ's love for the world and how unconquerable that is. Yeah. I like in that section where you say Jesus was fully human, uh, not in the sense that he couldn't sin, but that like he chose not to. And you're, you're, you use one line about, uh, 
Jesus isn't like humans on performance enhancing drugs or on steroids. Yeah. Uh, it's like Jesus without eating Twinkies or something. Maybe you could explain the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's like yeah. humanity, if we didn't eat crappy food and make terrible choices, like he is the fullness of what humanity is supposed to. Totally. Because, yeah, I think we say, you know, oh, Jesus couldn't have sinned. Uh, we tend to think like, well, then he wasn't really fully human because to err is human. We all make mistakes. Like, uh, you know, like, and so I think we tend to think, oh, if Jesus couldn't have sinned, then was he really fully like us, fully human? But I think that misunderstands the nature of sin, that sin, I would argue, makes us less human, not more. It's actually a dehumanizing force. It degrades, corrupts, our, and tears down our humanity. And so uh, the idea of Jesus not sinning, it's uh, less like, a, you know, an athlete using steroids. He's got kind of the special advantage to win. I uh, was like an athlete using steroids and more like uh, an athlete who never ate Twinkies. <laughs> like, yeah. like, there's kind of a sense of, uh, it's, it's not that he has this um, special advantage over us, um, uh, you know, some super juice or whatever. It's that he refuses to participate in the inhumanity that we all mm-hmm. participate in. Yeah. Um, so you're actually yeah. holding up the, like a, a bigger ideal for what humanity is. And Jesus yes. is the ideal of what humanity is. And so you're, you, used, you start the book off with the, uh, the metaphor of the incarnation mm. of you know, the artist uh, stepping into the painting. And that's, mm. that's what the incarnation, you know, God steps into the painting, into the full human experience and experiences like the full gamut of humanity. Which, like you're saying, I mean, this isn't, you're not making stuff up. I mean, this is kind of yep. like the church has been saying this for a long time. Totally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that for me, that, you know, that Jesus is true humanity. And, and as he, you know, one of the, one of the things I would, you know, behind the scenes is kind of trying to do in this book is uh, explore the idea of recapitulation is this kind of big, fancy, whatever weird word, but in the history of the church is this idea that Jesus lives the life we were supposed to live, <laughs> but lives it faithfully in order to reconcile and redeem humanity to himself. And so uh, we see throughout Jesus's life, he is uh, he is true Israel. He is living out Israel's story, his temptation in the wilderness, his kingdom ministry, his exile and death on the cross. Like He is living out all the stages and segments of Israel's story, but he's living them faithfully where Israel is unfaithful in order to redeem Israel as her new head. And it's Adam's story. He's reliving Adam's story that, again, the temptation and, and the... Um, the the kingdom, you know, being the, the agent of God's kingdom and the banishment from the garden at the cross. Like he's he's living Israel's story, Adam's story, and ultimately he's living our story uh, faithfully where we've rebelled or turned against him in order to uh, redeem creation to God and, and reconcile us as humanity to God. So yeah. that's sort of a driving sort of backdrop to the theme, to the book. It's split into three sections, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, but uh, trying to look through the biblical story at the biblical story through the lens of Christ and God's kind of redemptive heartbeat for the world. Yes. Okay. Before we get to crucifixion, the yeah. incarnation. So, if someone is listening to you reclaiming this uh, understanding, like not just the caricature, but the full understanding of what maybe you, uh, your understanding of the incarnation is, and they're trying to hear. Okay. So, Jesus is the the ideal human, the mm. recapitulation, as you want to call it, of humanity. Um, how is that good news to me? Like, what is the good news yeah. that, that, that the, the, the artist stepped into the painting? Um, what is that good news to me like? Yeah, definitely. Well, maybe to use the metaphor you mentioned. Uh, so I opened the book with it, you know, this vision I had years ago, this picture of like uh, this artist, and he creates this just glorious, beautiful painting and kind of pours himself into it. And um, and then he steps back as if to go, oh, this is good. 
but afterwards, there's sort of this dark corruption, uh, this decay that sort of starts at the center of the painting, and it begins to crack and spread its way out, sort of like a crack in the windshield that starts to spread, and it's threatening to destroy the painting. And I'm kind of watching going, man, what is the artist going to do? How's he going to respond? He has the craziest, weirdest thing you could ever imagine, but he lifts his leg and, like, steps into the painting and becomes a part of it, uh, unites his life with it, and steps in in such a way that his heart is kind of placed right over the decay at the center. And <clears throat> the decay in the darkness begins to, like, kind of work its way back and almost, like, attack the artist at the center of the painting until sort of, you know, like, he, he absorbs, he takes the destruction upon himself in order to conquer it. And then when he's done, uh, he doesn't speck out of the painting, but actually stands at the center of the painting, restored and whole, and almost more glorious, and there's a sense that this is the way it was always supposed to be, the artist dwelling within his painting. And <clears throat> so I use that as kind of a metaphor for looking at the life and mission of Christ, that the incarnation is like uh, God in Christ stepping into his painting, the creator entering creation, and uniting himself with uh, his world, the very fabric of his world, and the crucifixion being like that, you know, the artist being attacked, the creator within the painting being attacked and soaking in the destruction of, upon himself in the vicarious humanity of Christ. And then uh, the resurrection and all being like the, re the, the resurrection power of Christ, like restoring the painting, restoring creation back to God. So for me, that's really good news because I think it acknowledges the destruction we see in our world today. It, 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 it can... Uh, deal with the fact that, yeah, we can get honest about the raw brutality. I mean, I was just horrified. I flew back in Sunday night and turned on my phone and just saw all the news about Orlando and stuff, you know, and just the, the shooting and the targeting of the LGBT community and all that. And my heart just broke. It was, it was horrific. And I, I feel like there's, there's uh, a calling out in, in, in this story of yes, like life, in our sin-struck, war-torn world is brutal. And, and But within that, it's not without hope because we do have a God who is relentlessly coming after and who has taken our very destruction upon himself in Christ in order to make us whole. And so I, I think that we're beginning in Christ, we're beginning to experience that, you know, signs of that wholeness already, but there's also this hope that it's, it's going to be fulfilled when his kingdom comes. Um, so I, I guess I would say I feel like it's a, it's it can name the raw, harsh, brutal realities of our world and uh, at the deepest depths, and yet it can also bring a full hope that's not escapist, but it's actually hope for the reclaiming of God's world back to God. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's jump to uh, <coughs> resurrection, or let's let's jump to the crucifixion. And so you talk about different atonement mm. theories, and I love. Um, you, you put a different metaphor in there. You add Jesus as CEO. Hmm. So Jesus like the CEO of humanity. Hmm. Like uh, if Jesus was a CEO of Bank of America after the housing hmm. crisis or BP after uh, an oil spill, Jesus takes on the responsibility hmm. for that. Um, and so you, you create a different image of hmm. atonement. Like this is what Jesus' atoning death hmm. does. Um, and so... You're sensing, okay, we need a different image, and you obviously use the older ones that are the biblical mm. traditions, images of atonement. But do you think the images of atonement in some ways are outdated because of our cultural change? Like there's not a blood guilt culture mm. that we're in, so that doesn't really connect the same way. Um, do, do you think those images are outdated, or do you think that there, there's a way to restore yeah, them? Yeah, you know, I, I would opt for restoring. Uh, part of it for me has been, 
what I think has happened is often the language that we use, let's say language like sacrifice and wrath, I think has often been sort of lifted out and uprooted from Israel's story and become more abstract kind of conceptually. And then when we talk about it today outside of that original context of Israel's story, it just carries a lot of cultural baggage in our own context, you know? And, and so I, I, I feel like the, what, I, what I'm hoping to do is try and reframe the language back within the context of Israel's story where I think it starts to make more sense, you know? Um, and yes, you mentioned the, you know, Jesus being the, the CEO of Humanity Inc. and uh, Incorporated, Humanity Incorporated. Like what, what I'm aiming at there is um, with the whole uh, idea of substitution, you know, like it actually feels really unjust to go, um, dude, can one person really be substituted? In play? If there was a judge in a courtroom and kind of a common analogy is used in like, oh, well, this person here is guilty, but I'm going to, you know, but this other innocent person is offered to take their place and punish them instead. That would be like unjust. <laughs> that would be like, like no, nobody, no wrongs are righted. Society isn't protected. Like if, if that's what we mean by substitution, I think a lot of us kind of recoil and go, that, that doesn't really make sense. Um, but I think the idea in, in Israel's context, use this as an example, is much more um, what the church has historically called the corporate identity. And we are corporate, I think we think of like Starbucks and McDonald's and, you know, corporation. But back then it was more of the sense that it comes from the word uh, corporal, like of the body. And the idea that the human community is like a social body or, you know, uh, Israel was a social body. And uh, the head of the body kind of determines which direction it goes. So when Jesus becomes the head of Israel and the head of this new humanity, uh, he becomes identified with his social body. And so I don't think it's so much Jesus substituting himself an individual for an individual as it is Jesus is becoming the new head of Israel and of humanity. And as head, he identifies himself with his body. And so he uh, he's able to take on the full weight of the human corporation, so to speak, the human social body uh, that he's identified himself with. And so, yeah, like with that Bank of America example, after the housing crisis, um, you know, I can't remember, it's in the book, I think they were responsible for billions of dollars or whatever. You know, a billion, a billion, lot. Or, totally. And it would be ridiculous if we were to go, uh, you know, if, if Bank of America, like, hired their CEO and just hired a new CEO and goes, well, we don't owe any money now because that was under the old CEO. We have a new CEO now, you know. We would, the there would be a public outcry, like, no, that's unjust. Like, the corporation itself has a debt. The corporate body has a debt. Um, and the, and so uh, the new CEO kind of takes on ownership of trying to deal with that. And I, I think there's a similar thing at play where Jesus steps in as sort of the CEO of Humanity, Inc., the new head of the human social body. And at the cross, I believe he is bearing the weight of us as humanity uh, because he's identified himself with us and has bound himself in union with us. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so Jesus takes on the the corporal uh, consequences of humanity, so he takes on that. Um, but in some ways, didn't God set up the whole system? And this is God's system that God created. And does someone really need to eat the cost mm. for what was done? I mean, if if God set this whole thing up, um, why does there even need to be a payment? Can't God just say, hey, this is my system, I did it. Okay, we're starting. Yeah, well, one of the ideas I explore around there is I just say that uh, you know someone always eats the cost. <laughs> you know, like so uh, if uh, you know Tim Keller, I remember hearing him once use kind of an example like where if your neighbor comes home 
I may be changing the example a little bit. If neighbor home, if your neighbor comes home drunk one night and like crashes into your fence and you know and like just destroys your your fence in your yard and uh, stumbles into bed and you wake up the next morning and come out and like, oh my gosh, you just destroyed my fence, you know. And when your neighbor kind of sobers up and comes out and and you're like, oh dude, well, well I forgive you. Um, Forgiveness doesn't mean like the cost of fixing the fence goes away. You know, it just means that if the fence is going to get fixed, it means the owner is taking upon himself the, the he's going to eat the cost for doing it. And so he's no longer holding the perpetrator responsible for it. And so I think similarly in the Bank of America example um, <clears throat> that uh, we actually saw uh, a gr- probably the greatest, you know, one of the greatest debt forgiveness plans America's ever seen where. Uh, this massive multi-billion dollar debt uh, was forgiven. The banks were forgiven, uh, but it didn't mean that the cost went away, the destructive social impact. It meant the American public ate the cost. You know, and uh, forgiveness for the banks meant we ate the destructive impact of, of the stuff. And you saw kind of this public outcry. Or I think of, you know, the BP oil spill maybe being another example where um, it, it, BP could have been forgiven of the debt, but it wouldn't have made the oil Still go away. It would have meant others are going to eat the cost for cleaning it up. And so I, I think at the at the cross, what's happening uh, is that God is just forgiving. You know, like like he is um, he is eating the cost of uh, the destruction that we've unleashed in His creation by taking it upon Himself in order to absorb it mm-hmm. and, and make us whole. What about the person who's trying to figure out? the cost that's actually been created by them. They, they would go, you know what? I didn't kill anyone. I wasn't drinking and driving. I didn't run over some family. Um, you know, I've paid my mortgage. I haven't caused the mortgage crisis. I've been responsible as much as I know how. Um, what, what cost, what debt have I really mm. rung up? Yeah, so on, on a personal level for me, this struck home when, you know, back in college, I was a new follower of Jesus, and I was uh, worked on the border of Thailand and uh, Burma for kind of an anti-trafficking organization there, and was just horrified at kind of sex trafficking and the trafficking of children, and um, and just man, I was like, God, I want this out of your world forever. Like, would you deal with it? You know, like, would you would you get rid of this? And and it was really heartbreaking. Um, but as a new believer at the time, I remember reading through the Beatitudes, and Jesus kind of goes. Like uh, with adultery, like you think because you didn't commit adultery, you're okay. But I tell you, if you've even lusted after a woman, you know, and and, uh, and I was like, whoa. The image I had in my head was like, uh, Jesus wants to get rid of sex trafficking too, only he takes it a lot more seriously than I do. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I want to get rid of sex trafficking. Jesus wants to get rid of lust sort of thing, you know. And the image I had in my head was like a um, man, like a... Uh, large, wicked, gnarly tree in the world, and I kind of, of trafficking, and I kind of wanted to prune, prune back the most extreme branches of trafficking, and Jesus wanted to dig out the root, kind of the root of, of lust, and working in genocide areas uh, in Rwanda and Cambodia, I spent a lot of time there over the years, and um, just seeing what felt like this wildfire flame that tore the country apart, uh, and then Jesus speaking in the Beatitudes on, you think, you know, kind of like you haven't murdered, but I tell you if you've even had that rage or anger in your heart, and so um, that became convicting for me of going, dude, I think often in the West, like we think we're a lot better than we are. <laughs> you know, like we do have pride and lust and rage and greed and these sort of classic vices of the human heart in us. And I think often our wealth and affluence can kind of um, trick us with the illusion that we're better than we, we think we are. But I'm like, dude, it's easier to not steal your neighbor's cow when you've got two cars in the driveway, <laughs> in the garage, or yeah. like when you have plenty uh, it's easier to 
uh, look respectable on the outside, but I've been convicted that, man, if you pull away some of that stability and security and those different things, realizing, man, I could have committed, you know, I, I believe I could have committed genocide. I could have, um, I don't know, gone to the brothel or, you know, like, like, uh, that really think, you okay obviously one of the things i love the about reading your but, you know, yeah. I, yeah yeah okay first of all one of the things i love about reading yourself this in your last book is like you've been in some really like crappy spots mm-hmm. and it's interesting how you incorporate your theology into kind of like the most atrocious parts of our world and you like this book you, you tell a story about a, a lady named bien i think yes. that, i want to say her name mm-hmm. uh, just a brilliant story it's a beautiful story mm-hmm. uh it, it's based in a very terrible situation. Yeah. So with that being said, as someone who's been in those spots, yeah. for you to say, I could have committed genocide yeah. is a, a phrase that I would never think would roll off my tongue. Mm. But I've never, I, I've watched yeah. the movie Hotel Rwanda and I've, I know people who've come out of that, but I've never been there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Y- you've actually been there and you say, I, I could commit genocide. Yeah. Yeah. How, yeah. You're a decent guy. You've got great hair. You read books. <laughs> you're like, how, how could you commit genocide oh man well it's funny you know I've, I've hung out i spent a lot of time hanging out up on the uh the khmer rouge uh in cambodia were responsible for the genocide there brutal in the in the 70s but i, I spent a lot of time uh hanging out with khmer, ex-khmer rouge soldiers up in uh some of our cambodian friends leaders they they they're working up in that area and one of the things that struck me about these ex-khmer rouge soldiers who are responsible for the genocide is just how normal they are. You know, like they remind me of my grandpa, you know, and you can read accounts of, you know, after World War II of uh, Jewish survivors of the Holocaust going into the courtrooms, post-war courtrooms, and expecting to see the Nazi soldier on the stand as like this demonic monster. Yeah, Eichmann in yeah. Jerusalem. You know the What's book? What's that? Have you, What's that? Eichmann in Jerusalem. It's a book in which it talks, like the subtitle is The Banality of Evil. Like, oh, yeah. Like this, this, this terrible war criminal looks like a normal dude from yeah. accounting, like down totally. the hall. It looks like, like he's my neighbor. <laughs> totally. And so, just the yeah. the humanity of those that are, you know, on a very personal level. Another example there, I I had the privilege about three weeks back of officiating the wedding of our adopted son's biological mom. And so, uh, we adopted one of our children through foster care, uh, but really sought to reach out and love on and be there for his his mom as well, and have built relationship with her over the years and. Um, as I got to know, you know, like, man, sh- you know, we ended up doing some premarital counseling with her and the guy for the, the you know, weeks beforehand. And I got to know more oh, of her. Hold on. You're doing premarital counseling for your kid's biological yes. mother. That, yes. Okay. I've done my grandma's yeah. wedding and I thought that was the most awkward wedding ever. I think this one is the most awkward. I think you win. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. the most awkward. Oh, it was amazing. So you're doing premarital counseling <laughs> and one of the things, for this yeah, couple. And one of the things was like, that struck me was like, you know, at first, you you know, when we first received our son at the hospital as a newborn and you're just there's this anger because he spent the first nine months in the womb on meth and you're just going like anger at his mom. Like, how could you, you know, that's going to impact him for life. And how could you do that to your son? And then we go through this premarital sessions and I, I start asking more questions about what she saw her parents' marriage like growing up, stuff that she experienced growing up and, and her and the guy shared. They got vulnerable and shared a lot from their history and it knocked me over. I was, I went from like that anger of how could you do this, your son, to how are you still alive right now? You know, how the things that you have endured and been through, like you're a survivor, you know, and, and just a tremendous, I mean, there, I think there's still a righteous, you know, anger at, at the destruction that all of us unleash, but there's also that's balanced with this empathy of going, man, if I had been through what 
you've been through, I don't know that I'd be in a different spot. And yeah, and I, I've become convicted over the years that I, when it comes to, I can be a fairly lusty, violent hypocrite. <laughs> I know, like I, like I've got that junk in me, you know, and it's been, I, I'm in, I'm in process as, you know, the grace of Christ, I think working in my life over the years. And, um, but I've just become convicted that I think we're not as good as we think we are. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Obviously, like Jesus stuff about lust and and not adultery, not just adultery and anger, not just uh, murder. Like it's like the whole like, it's not the uh, the person that's different; it's just the percent that's yeah. different. Like it's it's yeah. all still in you. And you know, my wife. Um, I say you know, like you know what my wife does uh, for a living. But she was a neonatal ICU nurse, and so there are plenty of times that she took care of those babies that. Um, were addicted, mm. like they were born and just addicted to, you know, whatever it yeah. was. And it's yeah. easy for me to have like that same sort of righteous indignation. And then I realize, like you hear stories like this that, that you're sharing, I'm like, well, what if my life was different? Who would I be? Definitely. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, that's... yeah. So for me, like those vices of the human heart, you know, like it feels like that's sort of the core root level, but how those get expressed often seems related to just how much we've personally had to endure you know yeah 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 it's so like you said though it's easy not to go steal someone's cow when you've got two cars in the garage and yeah you remove us from a pretty situation are we really that different yeah and yet the beauty of just the grace of like that god comes after our world relentlessly even given given that you know yeah given yeah (laughs) okay Sure. Okay, we're running yeah. out of time. There's a question I had to ask sure. you. So you talked about atonement, and there was a title of a, a friend who's a friend of the show, Tony Jones. He wrote a book oh, called yeah. "Did God Kill Jesus?" Oh yeah. Once and for all, answer the question: <laughs> Did God kill Jesus? I think it all depends what we mean. I don't like using that phrasing, um, you know, because I, I think it's it's uh, it's I think it's misleading. I think the New Testament doesn't tend to use that language, um, but uh, I do think that I, I don't think that God is uninvolved. I don't think that God is uninvolved in the event of the cross. And so one of the ways I look at it, one of the big themes I look at in the cross section is, I believe what is happening is that Jesus is bearing our exile and death. And so uh, exile and death in scripture are depicted as the punishment for sin. So in, when Adam and Eve rebel, they're, they're banished into exile from the garden and they're on a trajectory towards death. You know, when Israel uh, rebels in the land, they're banished from uh, the land, and they're metaphorically depicted as the nation dying and all. Um, and so I, I, I think that's, and so at the cross, where Jesus is bearing our exile and death, uh, that exile and death are the punishment for sin, uh, the divine punishment for sin. And so I believe Jesus in his humanity is bearing uh, our divine, the divine punishment, but it's not the father against the son. Uh, historically, the the church, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox would frame it as the Father through the Son in the Spirit is at work in the cross, um, reconciling us to Himself. And yet, the Son, in His divinity, the Son is entering into our condition. In His humanity, He's bearing our condition upon Himself. So, one of the phrases I use is, um, you know, that I think Jesus is bearing our exile from the presence of God upon Himself, uh, and yet simultaneously is bearing the presence of God within himself into our distance. So this guy's like in his humanity, he's bearing our distance from God's presence upon himself. Yet in his divinity, he's bearing the presence of God within himself into our distance. And in terms of how is 
the father or divinity or how is God, you know, God involved in that crucifixion. And if we look at how Israel understood exile, uh, they actually had a very nuanced vision of what was going on. If you were to ask, hey, was God absent or present during Israel's exile? Uh, they would have said both, uh, which sounds strange to our modern ears, but there's a sense of one strong narrative of exile is that the people rebelled and they rejected God and they continually pursued him and they just kept, kept, kept rejecting. So God finally said, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. And God's glory departs the temple. God leaves the land. God kind of packs his suitcases and I'm going to give you over to the life you want without me. And when that happens, without his protective presence, Babylon invades, they tear down the, the temple, they destroy the land and, and take the people into captivity. And so from that angle, exile arises from God's absence. Uh, but from another angle, the prophets come back and go, God is actually at work. God calls like Babylon's armies, my armies, and, uh, and says, I'm actually doing something here. I am um, at work uh, bringing, you know, I, 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 I'm, I am at work confronting my people with the reality of their sin in hopes that it will, you know, bring them to contrition and back, back to me. And so if, when we look at the cross through that grid or that lens, um, I think it's fully right to say humanity is killing Jesus. You know, that you know, there's a sense of God has abandoned. Why have you forsaken me? You know, that, that kind of language thing that Christ in his sanity um, is uh, handed over to us and we crucify and destroy him. And yeah, I think there's another angle that would go, God is not absent at the cross. Like God is at work in the cross uniting Christ and his humanity fully to our condition, taking our exile and death and bearing it upon him. Uh, God is at work at the cross, sovereignly, actively at work in and through the cross um, in order to reconcile creation back to himself. So, yeah. 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 That's good. That's good. Now, while you were over at the yeah. Vatican talking to uh, our friend, the Pope, did you think about like holding up a copy of your book <laughs> And getting a picture with him, like with his arm around you or something, like getting the Pope to endorse the pursuing oh, guy. Oh no, I would have felt so cheesy doing that. You know, I, I would have never dreamed of that. But they actually had protocol they sent anyways that said, uh, you know, don't. Uh, <laughs> they, they were like, please don't bring your books or things to give to. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I would not have anyways. But they, but you know, they only make a rule for that if someone has. <laughs> I'm sure. People <laughs> <laughs> that's so true and you know what that's probably why they didn't invite me because i would have done something like that but uh josh I, I appreciate the book the pursuing god it's out now um we'll have links and all that to it but uh thanks for your time as always 